I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Francis Lamb, host of the much-loved public radio show, The Splendid Table. It's one of my favorites. Aside from being one of America's best food writers, Francis is editor-in-chief, Clarkson Potter, an important cookbook publisher. And for two seasons, he was a regular judge on Bravo's hit show, Top Chef Masters. And as if all that wasn't enough, he graduated first in his class at the Culinary Institute of America. In short, the dude rocks food and food culture which in Francis's eyes is really just culture, period, from every conceivable angle. Francis and I first met at the Writers' Conference two years ago, where he gave a talk called Why I Talk to Americans About Food. We're going to hear a couple of short clips from that talk in a moment, wrapped inside some of his current thoughts about the social experience of food during these pandemic times, the struggles and future of restaurants, and how certain tastes hit so deep they become identity markers for life. But first, let me welcome the man himself. Hey, Francis. I hope you're well. Hey, John. It's great to talk with you. So just before we went on, I asked you where in your house you were recording this. Would you tell us again? Yeah, sure. So this is the glamorous life of a radio personality. We've been recording The Splendid Table out of a studio since the pandemic started, so over a year ago now. And uh, it's been some mishmash of like a, a friend's cabin <laughs> gave us shelter for a while. And now we're back at home and now I'm in my daughter's bedroom where I set up her little play tent <laughs> and hang our bath towels on it for a little sound dampering. And uh, here we go. This is how radio gets made. We could use a little video just to show yeah. the, full, <laughs> the full regalia. Um, anyway, you're in Brooklyn. I'm uptown at the moment in a borrowed apartment also, as it stands. But yeah. so listen, you just heard me give this little podcast intro of you. Mm-hmm. 
But even that thumbnail sketch of your professional resume, it suggests that food and maybe above all stories about people and food have been at the center of your life for a long time, for always. Could you talk a little about where in America you grew up geographically and culturally? You know, how connected were you to the world your parents came from? And how did you arrive where you are now? Yeah, so I grew up in the Jersey suburbs, the child of immigrants from China. My father was born in Macau, but actually mostly grew up in a few different places in southern China. And the fact that I can't tell you all of them probably says something about the way that we communicate, sort of generational and cultural and personal sort of layers of communication that happen and don't happen for a lot of children in my kind of situation. But he pretty much identifies with being from Hong Kong, essentially. At some point in his life, his family moved to Hong Kong, and he sort of identifies with being from there, even though he didn't grow up there. My mother was born and raised in Hong Kong. And, you know, so when they came to the States in the early 70s, I was born a few years after they arrived. You know, they were coming to a place that, you know, they really felt in that sort of classic way was you know, the land of promise for them and the family that they hope to start. And my experience growing up as their child with that sense of promise and also that sense of feeling always a little bit removed, feeling always a little bit strange, feeling always a little bit like, do we really belong here? has really influenced me and my life as a person, certainly, but also, as you said, as a professional. I think I'm really, really interested in those ideas of what makes people feel like they belong and how we belong to our place, how we belong to places that we may have not grown up in ourselves, and how we can belong to one another. Mm -hmm. Those are incredible ingredients, if you will, for the making of a writer (laughs) as well, right? Um, That sense of being of and not of a place. And, right, um, so you talk about Hong Kong, and I, I still remember my few days in Hong Kong 20-some years ago, one of the best meals I ever ate. Hmm. I'm taken back. I know your grandfather played a singular role in the development of your heightened awareness of food as, I guess you'd say, an essential ingredient in the great extended meal that is everybody's life. Mm-hmm. And you told a story about him in Sun Valley, about Hong Kong and Macau, that I still vividly remember. So let's just take a listen uh, right now, and then we'll come back. Sure. A great food description can knock you so hard in the head that you feel it in your stomach. And that's worth thinking about, right? As a writer and as a reader, the experience of reading a great description of food is incredibly intimate. How often do you get to read something that opens you up to a kind of engagement that goes beyond even the emotional and gets to the visceral? And so I often wonder, how do we take that special thing, that special thing that food writing can do, and weaponize it? To take that intense sensory connection between writer and reader and use it in service of a story Right, to arm our arguments when we're writing essays, to connect an audience, not just to a great restaurant we want to recommend, but to tell a story that touches on things deeper even than deliciousness. And I say all this with an agenda, because I'm a food writer, 
who doesn't really think that I write about food all that much. Right? I eat food because I love food, and I cook food because I love food, but I write about food because I love people. And all food stories are really stories about people, and that means they're stories about hope, they're stories about longing or desire or self-worth, identity, politics, and belonging. And I think I come by this thought honestly, because my grandfather grew up poor in rural China. I've been to his hometown. It's the kind of town where chickens literally still cross the road and where shoes are hard to come by. Even though, ironically, there's a sneaker factory there now, but welcome to China in 2019. <laughs> he walked out of that town. And he eventually made it to Hong Kong, where in the latter half of his life, he made some money. And as long as I could remember him, he spent that money on feeding the people he loved the food he always wished he could have when he was young. And so I remember one night, during one of the summers I used to spend in Hong Kong as a, as a little kid, going with him on a boat over to Macau to a restaurant. We walked into the dining room, past the customers, and like, weirdly, I remember my aunties gossiping that there was a famous porn star at one of the tables. <laughs> we went to a secret back room. It was a pretty nondescript looking restaurant, and we went to a secret back room, we opened the door, and suddenly there was this red curtain and the entire room was decked out in red velvet. And we sat and we had this glorious meal and the centerpiece of this meal was this special soup that the restaurant was known for. This giant porcelain terrine comes out with a whole black chicken in the middle of it. It was the most exquisite broth. It was a shark's fin soup, which is not something I think we should be really eating anymore, but eating shark's fin in our culture and certainly in my grandfather's day meant that you'd made it. If you could afford this food, you have arrived. And that was over 30 years ago, and I can still remember that soup. I remember the taste of it. I remember the exact color of those walls. I remember the look on my grandfather's face. He was beaming, like he belonged in this place. And when I think of the stories part of food stories, what I really think back to is the face that my grandfather was making when he brought us to have that soup. He looked so proud. He looked so happy. And it made me realize that people's food stories are deep stories. And the best ones are the ones that start with the food, not end with it. I love that. Your grandfather must have been a remarkable man. And I, I love what you say at the end there. You know, it's, it's so true. Our best stories are the ones that start with food, not end with it. <laughs> and that brings me to a so, small leap of connection, I guess you could say, like, I don't know, going from one course to another in a Kaiseki meal. But <laughs> you and I both live in New York City. Mm -hmm. And it's now just past the one-year mark since the first recorded death from COVID here. Mm -hmm. And then following that, the lockdown that changed all of our lives and made us homebound creatures, right? In a way we never imagined. Sure. And among other things, the restaurants closed, many of them permanently. And the making of food as a social act 
grew insular and family-oriented to a degree that few of us had ever experienced. And so I wonder, for you, what have these changes been like, you know, for you, for your family, and how do you think it's altered your experience of cooking and eating? Hmm. It's interesting because I, I, I can speak to this as a person, but, you know, there's also this sort of understanding or expectation that oh, as a professional, too, it's really changed how I engage with this thing that is, you know, at least one of the subject matters of my work. You know, if, if <laughs> to my to my point, I was I was trying to make, you know, the, the food is never really the be all and end all of much of the work I do, but it's an important piece of it. And a really important piece of it is just the pure enjoyment of it. You know, what is more exciting than a taste you haven't had before? You know, that sort of thrill. Or what is more fulfilling than a taste you've had a million times before? You know, there's the gamut between inspiration, excitement, and satisfaction and comfort. You can run that gamut through the course of a single meal. And that's an emotional and sort of experiential core to a lot of what I do. And a lot of that disappeared in my life for the last year. Again, you know, boo-hoo. I mean, there are people who literally can't get enough food, period. So, like, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's that's a condition under which I've had to sort of rethink some of my, how my work works in the moment. But the other side of it is I've cooked at home more in the past year than I ever have, probably in my entire life. I mean, certainly in any given year of my entire life. So for the first few months of the pandemic, for the first four months or so, we lived with another family, basically bunked up together. Um, so our kids would have someone to play with and, and all that stuff. And naturally fell upon me to, it was my job to make dinner for our two families every night. And so every, every night, five o'clock, no matter what was happening, what was going on at work, deadlines, I, I would say had to, but now I can say get to. I got to stop whatever I was doing because I knew that at five o'clock I had to start cooking dinner to make sure dinner was on the table before the kids, you know, lost their minds with hunger. And what that quickly meant to me was I got to have something that put me fully in the moment, fully in the present. It didn't matter what was stressing me out at work or or whatever. So at five o'clock, I just knew I, I, you know, there was the only thing that mattered was I got people fed. And I look forward to it, honestly. And became a great source of comfort and a great source of knowing that I was, you know, my presence was worthwhile. <laughs> you know, there was a meaning uh, to what I was empowerment. Yeah, for sure. Kind of confidence, sense of identity. Um, I know as writers during this time, I mean, oftentimes it was hard to feel really useful or relevant. Mm-hmm. As yeah, all the sure. news unfolded, I wonder if you've you've written so many wonderful pieces about individuals all over the country. You know, in the South, in little mm-hmm. restaurants and and backwaters. And I wonder if looking back on on some of the stories you've written now that you've had this experience, you think about them in a slightly different way now that you've had this experience where it's sort of you've gone to ground as it were, doing this day after day. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of my focus on writing about cooks, about people who, whether they were cooks whose you know, goal was to advance the sort of 
aesthetic or cultural dialogue of food, meaning like, you know, were they fancy chefs who were really trying to do creative, innovative cooking? Or whether they were cooks who were cooking something that they knew in their bones, you know, that they knew from their culture, that they knew from their home, and that they were just trying to feed their guests, feed their customers, but also feed themselves and their family, right? Like whether they were just doing it, I don't say just, but whether they were doing it, you know, primarily to make a living um, and to support their families. And to me, you know, the motivations might be very different. The trappings might be very different. The stories might be very different. The kind of dialogue might be very different. But for me, I've always been intrigued by those stories at their core because of a respect for work and a respect for labor and a respect for people who perform labor for other people. And I just think that that, you know, I don't want to romanticize work in that way, but I think that there is a dignity that should be afforded to us for our work. And I think that dignity is, in my mind, when I say that my work is political and my writing is political, oftentimes it's really just about humanizing invisible people. And whether they're invisible because of their race or they're invisible because of their gender or they're invisible because, you know, they're literally toiling in the part of the restaurant you don't get to see. You know, I think it's about that. I think it's about a continual reaffirmation that our humanness and our work and our dignity should be inherent. And I want to keep the spotlight on folks who don't often have that spotlight placed on them. And that it should result oftentimes in these wonderful tastes that end up having such meetings for people. Yeah, for who sure. May not, who may not even you know think of them most of the time, and yet they carry that taste with them. And so it's an interaction between parties who may not see each other. And I think you do so well. You connect one side to the other through the telling of those stories. And it's, it's a really valuable thing. And it's also joyous because in the end, it is about a taste, mm-hmm. or it, which is a kind of, um, it's an experience as, yeah. as much as it is a food. And so I'm wondering, you know, during this crisis, this health, social, economic crisis of such historic proportions, if you think about it, how it's affected the stories that you're thinking about and choosing to tell now and how you think that might change as we move into the months ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's from a very practical standpoint, I have a great answer for that in the sense that I I actually don't do a lot of writing uh, at the moment. My work as an editor right now is really sort of at the forefront of my mind a lot. And my work on radio and doing my show is... Um, Man, isn't that enough? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a lot, actually. <laughs> but when I think about the stories that are out there that I want other people to tell, because I want to read, there are so many. I mean, we are in uncharted waters right now when it comes to the hospitality, restaurant, and food in general industry in our society. We're in a place where the industry, or one of the main industries that has served as a, I don't want to say a landing pad because that makes it sound safe and secure and it often isn't, but served as the place where, like I said, many invisible people could somehow make a living for themselves and their families. Immigrants, undocumented people, people uh, you know who are marginalized in lots of different ways, class, race, etc. You know, like the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry, or the food production industry has always been a place where marginalized folks 
gravitate towards to make their livings. And this is an industry that has, I mean, I don't even know how bad it suffered, how many restaurants have closed and how many, you know, I was talking to Grace Young um, not too long ago. Grace Young is a wonderful food writer who's written a lot about techniques of wok cooking and a lot about Chinese and Chinese American cuisine. And she's been really, really active in efforts to support Chinatown, the Chinatown in Manhattan, New York City, you know, where the Chinatown's closest to her. But just the idea of Chinatown, Chinatowns across the country and, you know, even a bigger way, if you have a, a Chinatown, just Chinese restaurants and Chinese restaurateurs and Chinese restaurant families. And she was saying that it's hard to tell. No one's really done the research, but one data point and seemingly a convincing one of how bad the devastation is just among Chinese restaurants, which by the way, there are more Chinese restaurants in, our, in this country than McDonald's. I mean, they're a huge part of our fabric. Um, 60% of Chinese restaurants in our country have ceased their credit card activity, which strongly indicates that they've closed. 60%. Boy, that's, that is um, really shocking. You know? And that was the economic lifeline for generations upon generations of just Chinese immigrants. And then you multiply that across other communities. And it's just, it's yeah, harrowing. It's mind-boggling. It's, yeah. it's harrowing how many people have lost even that bare economic foothold. So, and all the stories that come with that. We're going to go forward from this moment and things are beginning to shift again. Economically, obviously, the damage is going to linger. At the same time, just looking around this city, all these closed storefronts and these restaurants that are either temporarily or permanently down, some of them will be filled again, either mm -hmm. by those restaurants or by new restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I don't want to put a, a glossy spin on this in any way. At the same time, you know, the life of cities is so oddly resilient that they keep going and turnover and more immigrants and more young people come in in the space where others were. And so I just wonder if whether you've seen personally as you go around your Brooklyn neighborhood, which is my old neighborhood, and mm -hmm. seeing any kind of a silver lining, I guess, to what's going on in these industries or like a, I don't know, a surprising resiliency in how certain restaurants have coped with the adversity or maybe a, a case where people's imaginations, a cook or a, a servers have risen to the occasion in helpful, sure. way, hopeful ways, usually by helping others, I suspect. Yeah. I mean, and there are a thousand stories to be told and along those lines and, and, you know, all of them different. One thing, you know, particular to the industry and in particular to the idea of those cooks restaurant cooks that I think does give me some hope is, is uh, actually found on Instagram, funny enough. But I started to notice at some point that there were more and more Instagram accounts that were opening that were saying, you know, Instagram accounts that were, you know, pictures of these beautiful pastries or these like really nice meals. And, you know, it's a cook who was out of work and basically was, you know, I'm going to cook 20 orders of this dish in my home if you want one send me a message uh, and there'll be, you know, $20 a piece or, or whatever. And there were these, these sort of like internet social media pop-ups of folks who were, you know, probably out of work and who, but still love their art and their craft. Yeah. They love cooking yeah. and they wanted to be able to do it. Even if they weren't doing it in a restaurant anymore, that maybe they can do it out of their home and maybe they. Um, and others who love eating. And yeah. just going into their restaurants yeah. and seeing those pastries or that 
that dish and they go on Instagram and they see a picture of it and they yeah. want it. I mean, I, I had one case where a, a young woman who was a pastry chef um, decided, well, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it for myself. And she was using these high-end pastry techniques, but applying them to flavors that she grew up with as a Filipina. And so she was making these like stunning cakes that were inspired by traditional Filipino desserts. And you can order them for six bucks a piece or some of her cookies were amazing. The cookies are like three dollars and you get enough of them and she'll like drive to your house and like hand them, you know, <laughs> put them on your doorstep, ring the bell and walk away. And, and so I do have a sense that I hope some of these folks doing this gather enough of a momentum that yeah. when it's safe to start operating again, maybe they'll find a way to turn that into a more permanent um, thing. And maybe what it means is there's a little less competition right now, and maybe rents are a little cheaper, and maybe the barrier to entry to opening your own thing is a little less difficult. And um, so I do have some hope in that regard. Good. Well, you know, just listening to you just now, it's reminding me of one of the things I so admire about your writing, which is the incredibly close attention you pay to how we we interact with each other as social creatures, you know, interactions that mm -hmm. like people themselves can have all different kinds of expression, both positive and negative. And sure. that leads me to the second clip that I had mentioned I wanted to listen to from your Sun Valley talk. So let's take a listen to that and then we'll we'll circle back after that. Okay. Sure thing. I was reheating some pork and rice in the microwave. I was off from school that day and I followed my parents to work, which is something I did a lot because I just hated the feeling when they would say goodbye and leave for the day. But I had never had anything to do when I got there. So I would just like show up there and like sit there, wait for lunch and then like wait to go home. So lunch finally came this day and um, my dad and I never went out by ourselves. But that day my mom was busy and he got hungry and he's like, oh, let me show you this new place in the neighborhood that I like. So we went there and I remember the plastic trays. I remember the pickled greens that he loved, he just couldn't get enough of. The shiny new steam table, the place was brand new. And I remember how he watched me eat. And I was scarfing down these little pork chops. And as a parent now, like, I know that feeling, right? That feeling that everything is all right when you see your child eating food where like everything disappears and like the one thing that I am on this earth here for, like that's happening right now, it's all okay. Of course I didn't know that then, you know, I was just a little kid, but I could see something in his eye, right? And I could see, I could tell that there was something a little special about the two of us together there. Something about the way he looked at me and I felt a closeness with my usually stoic father. What happened to the three points father, you know? <laughs> So later that afternoon, my parents are both out on the floor. I'm in the back office eating the leftovers from that lunch for a snack when a very important client came in. I could tell he was important because he was this tall, well-dressed white dude with a British accent. You know, we're a Chinatown business. We don't see <laughs> a lot of people like that. And when he talked, it was like, oh my God, the king of Britannia is here. <laughs> so anyway, he comes in looking for my parents. And the first thing he says was, Actually, no, it wasn't even the first thing he said. The first thing he did was... And then he said, What in God's name is that awful smell? I looked down at my plate, 
I don't know what this is, I said. I pretended to be disgusted by the lunch my father shared with me, and I made a big show of throwing it out in front of this man. And I realized many years later that what I had learned was a lesson in shame that day. Not shame for what I did, even, but shame for what I liked, shame for who I was. And remembering that now, living in a country that is shredding itself to pieces with tribalism and exclusion and racism and division, I think about food and the emotional life of food and how it can be either a tool or a weapon. That memory of shame that you describe, man, it, it just cuts right to the bone, you mm -hmm. know, and that within that clip that we just heard how so many rises and falls and the sweetness of the complicated sweetness of your mm -hmm. father watching you eat carefully, really taking in what you're doing and then how that now makes you know you're a parent, you watching your child eat, you feeding your child, and then later back at the workplace and the, the king of Britannia <laughs> comes in and, and then it, it turns, right? And you become almost an actor in your own shame. Sure. Yeah, totally. He gets you to disown what you love and where you come from. And I relate to that in, in memories of my own in different ways, but it's that sweetness and sour combination. I guess it makes mm -hmm. me wonder about that how sometimes it's the contrasts and juxtapositions, you know, or tool or weapon, as you say, that give the most expressive shape to our experiences as we go forward. And I wanted to ask you whether, do you think that that perpetual yin-yang of emotion and memory is one of your main inspirations for why you choose to tell stories of the kind you do, so often about food and people, or people and food, or people through food, the sense that our memories are never made out of only one moment or only one feeling, but somehow hold these separate aspects all together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the complex nature of all of our sort of emotional lives is really the sort of meat of all of our stories, right? So I think that there's just a... An, <laughs> I'm not even intending on using food puns, and I, I don't know if you are either, but they just sort of come out, you know? And I, and I think... But it, I think that speaks to the sort of centrality of, of those cliches. Like I'm often fascinated by cliches because, um, well, how did they become cliches? Like, how was this idea, which was probably clever at one point, become something that you roll your eyes at because, oh, God, that's so unclever of you to use? Like, there was a germ to, to some insight in it at one point, right? And I think, oh, all these food metaphors that you can use naturally, you know, not even intentionally, when talking about the complexity of our lives and the combination, even you said, of sweet and sour, um, the combination of bitter and sweet, you know, how those things are so related and so prevalent that they became cliches, you know, but I think they are at the core of what makes our you know, emotional stories complex and as a writer, how those stories feel real. So yeah, I have to confess, like, you know, in the sort of field of food writing, there's long been a cliche that I do personally seek to kind of distance myself a little bit from that, well, food brings us together. And, you know, I believe that at one well, I don't want to say I don't believe it, but I believe that wholeheartedly and unquestioningly at one point, 
right? Well, you eat and I eat, and therefore we have something in common. Well, I think it's pretty clear that that's probably not enough in common <laughs> to really make that much of a difference. Believe it or not, people have been able to commit atrocities towards other creatures that have eaten. Um, <laughs> But, um, so I, I think that that in and of itself is not really a satisfying idea. Um, it's not really big enough an idea. But I do think what we do have in common, or what we can have in common, is this bigger idea that we have powerful personal emotional connections to our food. And if we can open up gates of empathy and understanding that can encompass that, then maybe food can be another way for us to connect. At the same time, because we have powerful, emotional, personal relationships to food, we also know that that is something we can hold against one another. Right? We also know that the kids making fun of you know, this kid for whatever they brought in their lunchbox, they know what they're doing, right? They know what they're doing. So it's unsatisfying for us as food writers to think, well, food brings us together. Therefore, if I tell stories about food, we can all come together. But I think knowing that what is behind that cliche and working with that, the complexity of it and, and allowing for complexity and allowing for pain as well as pleasure and pain as well as comfort helps us understand the, a, a deeper truth that can maybe get us somewhere as writers to you know, humanizing one another a little more. I so agree. So before we go, I want to come back to your kitchen for a minute, your kitchen at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and could you tell me a story? Would you just to make my day uh, a little better, just a little story of some kind that starts with food, <laughs> but doesn't end there. And it ends maybe with you and your five-year-old daughter, because I know you guys have been spending a fair amount of time together in the kitchen. Sure. <laughs> what would I say? Well, I mean, I would say, yeah, I would say this, you know, the last year, I, like I said before, I've cooked at home more than ever. And the timing of that in my life actually gave me the opportunity to spend really formative time with my kid. You know, to be at home with her for a year straight is in its own way amazing, you know, not to minimize what's happening in the world around us and make that the case, but I, I will go to the grave remembering this time that I've been able to spend with her that otherwise I would have spent in an office or commuting or whatever. And the fact is we've had dinner every single night for 365 plus nights now. Which is one fifth of her life. Yeah. You know, and to see how she's grown as an eater and to feel the satisfaction of being able to feed her. Like I said earlier, like there really is no feeling like watching your child eat where you realize this is the only thing biologically <laughs> that you're put on this planet for, right? Is <laughs> this moment. And so there's a great pleasure there. But what I'm really appreciating, and I mean that maybe in the more abstract sense, but also maybe in the more common sense of enjoying <laughs> is watching her eat food now and tell me she hates it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to be fair, there are things that she is eating now with a greater gusto than ever before. She thinks she's um, hating with a greater gusto than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> but she like, she's gotten really into bacon, 
now all of a sudden she's never met a French fry that she didn't want to, you know, that she didn't like, you know, she's gotten into that mode where she's getting into things and she's like identifying with certain foods that she loves. Oh, daddy, I'd love oatmeal. Thankfully, one of the things she loves is oatmeal. So it's not all junk food, but <laughs> daddy, I can eat oatmeal every day, right? Yeah, sure. If you want. And then it's like, daddy, can I have French fries every day? Yeah. <laughs> but the thing I, I actually enjoy about her starting to say that she hates things and I don't want a picky kid. You know, I don't want a picky eater. She generally has a good attitude. But I think more than anything, what I'm realizing is, oh, this is her a, a way that she's learning to exhibit her own power or recognize her own power or recognize her own agency or her own individuality, right? Like she doesn't have to like the thing I put in front of her. In fact, she can tell me, daddy, I hate this. And, you know, say, you know, that's not really a nice thing to say to someone. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the bigger story of, oh, wow, I'm learning. I'm like watching a person learn how to assert herself, how to sort of be her own person. And that's a pretty awesome feeling. Well, that's a great story, actually. I'm going to go back and see my 15-year-old and <laughs> I will may learn to hate things a long time ago. Yes, the novelty of him hating things is no longer exactly. exciting. <laughs> well, it's not quite as fresh as it once was, but nonetheless. Listen, Francis, this has been wonderful to talk to you. And the same. I love what you're doing. I hope you find some time to do some more writing again. I know it's a challenge, but I also know that the cookbooks you're working on and and the stories you're telling through Splendid Table continue. If anything, they hold more value now than than ever. I really think as we oh, thank you as we come out of our shells and go back into the world and think about how we want to spend our energies and who we can help and who we can listen to and what we can taste. You take good care of yourself and your family, and uh, we are going to have that dinner in Brooklyn uh, soon enough <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as we're yeah. able to get back together and um, also look forward to seeing you back in Sun Valley uh, one of these summers very soon. That'd be amazing. All right. To take care of you, yourself. Be well. Yeah, take care. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. <laughs>